From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Wildfires burn away the vegetation and ground cover that absorb summer rain in the mountains. And there's only so many places water can go, so it's either absorbed, it's infiltrated, or it runs off. But then when a fire occurs, we end up with very little capacity to absorb or infiltrate the water. And so more of it runs off. It runs off faster, and it's more concentrated. That means mudslides, like the ones closing Colorado's highways. Then, the Army has destroyed three-quarters of its Cold War-era mustard gas stockpile in Pueblo. What will it take to neutralize the last 650 tons of the now-banned chemical weapon? And diapers are expensive, and when families can't afford them, it can put babies' health and even parents' jobs at risk. A new state law aims to help. It has been an extraordinary year for CPR News, providing news coverage important to all Coloradans. Hi, I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of CPR. Your support has fueled and inspired our news team, recently recognized with more than two dozen local, regional, and national awards, including eight regional Edward R. Murrow Awards and a National Press Foundation Award for mental health reporting. These accomplishments were made possible by your support. You inspire us every day. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Open again, closed again, that's the way it's been for a major interstate through Colorado for the last few weeks. Mudslides, or the threat of them, have led to frequent closures of I-70 around Glenwood Springs near the site of last year's Grizzly Creek wildfire. And it isn't just burn scars that are causing trouble. I'm joined by geologist Paul Santi from the Colorado School of Mines. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you, Avery. Happy to be here. The big question here, are we going to see more mudslides and road closures in the Glenwood Springs area through the summer? I think so. This is a, a problem that's that's really hard to solve, and there are a lot of potential source areas. And so uh, it's something we've, we've just got to uh, learn to live with and be patient. And there were several major wildfires in Colorado last year. So that means that there are several burn scars. Are there similar risks elsewhere in the state because of wildfire damage? Everywhere that is burned and is mountainous has a chance for this. And there are a few other factors that contribute to it. Maybe the steepness of the mountains or how much sediment there is in the channels to be eroded. Uh, So some places are worse than others, but we've got these chances all over Colorado right now. Tell me a little bit more about those risks. I understand the idea that when a tree is gone, that it anchors some of the soil, so the soil runs downhill. What are the other risks that go into an area making it mudslide prone? Right. So it's it's even more the ground cover than, than the trees. And so we have this, uh, what the foresters refer to as litter and duff. So it's the dead material that's on the soil. And that serves as sort of a sponge. And so when it rains, that can absorb some, some of the water. And it also can help the water infiltrate into the soil. And there's only so many places water can go. So it's either absorbed, it's infiltrated, or it runs off. And so it's reducing the runoff. But then when a fire occurs, it burns up that sponge. And we end up with very little capacity to absorb or infiltrate the water. And so more of it runs off. It runs off faster, and it's more concentrated. And so it takes smaller rainstorms to actually cause these these mudslides or, or debris flows, as we call them. We're talking about burn scars and the risk that can cause for mudslides, but there were actually multiple mudslides reported just Tuesday on U.S. 285 near Poncha Springs. 
what conditions other than wildfire damage, because there weren't wildfires up there, can cause mudslides? Right. And that's an important point, that this is a hazard that's always with us. And so even in Glenwood Canyon, before it burned, for example, and so on uh, near Poncha Springs, then just an intense rainstorm falling on a steep hillside that has uh, a lot of soil in the canyon, you can get debris flows. And so this, this was basically what I was studying 30 years ago before the, the, the wildfire was, was really something that we were concerned about. In the best case scenario then for burned areas, it recovers, the vegetation comes back, but then you're back at your baseline hazard, which is what, what we've just seen is, is still a problem. The wildfires, they can increase intensity, but to some extent, mudslides, they're a factor of mountain life. Exactly. You've been studying slides like these through your entire career. With climate change causing both more intense storms, more wildfires, will mudslides become more common? That's the expectation. In fact, we're, we're doing a study right now. I have a graduate student, Zane White, who is looking at uh, the, the Thomas Fire area, which burned in December of 2017 in Southern California, and then a month later, there were a number of these uh, debris flows that, that killed 23 people, and it's, these were famous because it buried Oprah's yard in mud. He's looking at um, what are the expectations if that fire were to occur in the year 2050 or in the year 2075, and how much bigger will it be, how much more intense the models that we're using have in the year 2050, this fire would be a little over 50% larger. In the, in the year 2075, it would be 80% larger and, and obviously then more, more danger and more damage. So you're expecting just quite a bit of intensity to increase. Right. What stands out about what has happened in Glenwood Springs? Is there anything that makes what's happened there different than what you've seen elsewhere in your career? You know, the fact that we have a highway running across the whole thing means that we've got vulnerability to every canyon that fronts that highway. In a lot of places, you're looking at a neighborhood or whatever's built at the mouth of a single canyon. But now here we have this linear feature that runs for miles. And, and so it, it, it feels like most of the uh, slides that come down are going to impact this highway in one way or another. And let's talk about what's happening here geologically. I understand that a mudslide is a pretty general term. There are actually several types of slides. What's the range? You know, at one end of the spectrum is pure water. At the other end of the spectrum is pure dirt. And I live in the middle. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so classically, what we're talking about for debris flows are things that are um, about the viscosity, about the density of concrete. The water itself is carrying so much material that it can actually float bigger, bigger particles like gravel and boulders and, and, and cars, um, things like that. Now, I'll point out that there have been no reports of injuries or serious damage in the mudslides that we've seen so far this summer. Not to scare people, but would you describe what a, defri- what a debris flow is like in terms of how big and powerful it is? I know you're mentioning floating cars. That sounds right. large. Well, it sort of depends where you are in, in the event. So these the start up in the high canyons, and the, the flow itself is very confined, which means it has a high velocity and it's not spreading out it's not depositing very much these might be going you know 15 20 feet per second much faster than you could run um, once it reaches the mouth of the canyon and has a chance to spread out a little bit the tendency is for them to slow down some and so at that point then uh, if if it's if you're far from the mouth of the canyon and it hits a house 
there's less chance that it's going to knock the house off the foundation, but rather it will break in the basement windows and fill the basement. It'll, it'll push in the garage door. Um, but the higher up you get in the canyon, the more confined it is. Uh, it, it has these high velocities and, it, and it's much more destructive. What about the impact on water quality? I know the city of Glenwood Springs imposed some water restrictions after the first weekend of slides back in late June. So really what we're talking about is, is sediment in the water, and, and that's the real issue. And then whatever else that, that the water's picking up when it's moving. And so there may be, because we've got uh, mining in the area, we've got natural minerals in the area, it may be picking up some of those minerals. It may be picking up um, chemicals or anything that's in its path. And it can certainly uh, make the water unfit to drink. It can also... Um, foul water intake areas or water treatment systems. It can plug uh, drainage systems like culverts. Um, it can even plug areas under bridges and take out bridges. There's a number of stressors in the system. Right. Is it possible for experts to predict a mudslide, particularly the more severe ones? That, so that's the million-dollar question. And we've been, uh, people have been working on this um, over a number of years. The U.S. Geological Survey has, has made great strides with this. And in fact, every time there's, there's a fire in a mountainous area in the western U.S., they prepare hazard maps very quickly. And so they divide the watersheds up into sort of high, medium, and low hazard areas. Um, and, and they've got uh, a, a number of different equations that have been proven out over time to predict both the probability and then also the volume. And then they combine those two into an overall risk. The other way of, of looking at prediction is to establish uh, rainfall thresholds. And so it, these are specific for each location. But if you have a record of rainstorms that produce mud mudslides, debris flows, and uh, rainstorms that did not produce them, you can establish sort of a threshold line so that we know what rainfall intensity will generate these. Um, so let's say that I'm taking a nice, relaxing drive in the mountains and it starts to rain. Is there a way that I, as an amateur, can look around me and say, okay, it looks like there is potential here for a slide? Well, if if there's water running on the road and it's coming out of a mountain canyon, that's a good chance. And if the water starts changing color, um, that's that's when I would really start getting worried because it's that's often a very quick precursor. It's not a long warning time, but it's it's the kind of thing that that wit eyewitnesses have said they've they've seen the creek change color, for instance, and then seconds later, maybe a couple minutes later, here comes this mudslide. Um, it, the the what you're really worried about is short, intense rainstorms, the kind of summer cloudbursts that we're getting in in this monsoon season. That's those are the ones that are really a problem. If I was seeing thunder clouds forming above the Glenwood Canyon. Um, I would just stop in Glenwood Springs and have a coffee and uh, and take a take a break during that period. And is there anything that can be done to reduce the risk or prevent mudslides from happening? Another important question that people are working on, and and there there's not a lot. One of the things that people will do after wildfire is really try to replace what the vegetation did, and so part of that is seeding and getting things to grow back although it will do that naturally over a course of a few seasons. Um, people will also spread mulch, but that becomes very labor-intensive to do it right. Um, at the other end, you can treat things sort of at the mouth of the canyon. Good example of that, Southern California, 
started in the 1930s building uh, retention basins or debris basins at the mouths of canyons. And these are just large sort of horseshoe-shaped earthen dams. But those require a lot of space at the bottom, uh, which are space and access to the right-of-way, <laughs> neither of which we really have in, in, in Glenwood Canyon. Um, you know, other than those, you, you can build um, basically berms to try to control the direction of the flow. Um, you can do computer modeling to predict where you think it's going to go and avoid those areas. Um, but there's no real magic bullet here. For many years now, people have been building closer to what were once wild areas, closer to potential natural hazards like mudslides. More immediately, what can be done to keep them safe? So it, it is possible to build um, smaller sort of deflection berms behind houses and to try to control it sort of on a neighborhood by neighborhood basis. Um, and so, so if, if someone's already there, you, you can do that. I know, for instance, Aspen has some regulations on uh, where you can build and the modeling you have to do, uh, basically to not expose yourself to these hazards and not to really deflect the hazard onto your neighbors either. Um, and, and so if it's not the, the cheapest option, um, but it's, it's really, uh, one of the more helpful ways, especially if, if somebody's already committed to property and is, and is built there and wants to uh, make sure that they're safe. Paul, I want to thank you so much for sharing. You're welcome. Paul Santi is a professor of geology and geological engineering at the Colorado School of Mines. Experts say if you're planning to travel in the mountains, you should pay attention to the weather forecasts and check road conditions at cotrip.org. That's cotrip.org. <laughs> Colorado's trees are under constant threat of wildfires, drought, and beetles, but there's another factor to consider along highways. A curious listener asked about the impact through Colorado Wonders. Miguel Otarola from CPR's climate team has the answer. Drive along the I-70 corridor between the Front Range and the Rockies, and you'll see a lot of dead trees. Some were burned by wildfires, others killed by drought and mountain pine beetles, all of them subject to climate change. But something else is killing the trees directly next to the highway, something we've known about for a very long time. That something is road salt. The Colorado Department of Transportation uses road salts to melt the snow and ice packed on the interstate and other highways. While it makes it easier for plows to shovel the snow and for motorists to get back on the road, the salt kills many of the conifer trees along the way, turning needles brown and leaving older ones to fall off prematurely. Nicole Trayan studied the problem for CETA as a master's student at the University of Northern Colorado. She found a strong correlation between the health of the trees and the amount of road salts on their needles and in the soil. We've known that salt is harmful for vegetation for, oh, gosh, I know, since forever, since Roman times, since people were salting fields. Passing cars can splash those salts anywhere from 30 to 300 feet. And because it depends on exposure to the chemicals, needles that face away from the road may even stay green. CDOT has only increased its use of de-icing road salt since Trans study was released in 2007. CDOT maintenance engineer Tyler Weldon says this has to do with how much traffic has increased in recent years. We're increasing our winter operations to, to handle that traffic going up to Summit County and to the ski areas during the winter. So CDOT's under a lot of pressure to keep those highways open. There are other de-icers, such as those that are acetate-based, that can still clear the roads without using harmful chlorides. Weldon says CEDA is always looking for better products to use, 
but that he didn't know much about those acetate de-icers. So for now, they continue to spray the tried and true road salts. Train says the dead trees are just the price for having access to the mountains year-round. I'm Miguel Otarola, CPR News. Diapers are a hidden need, and a new state law aims to address it. Governor Polis signed the Emergency Supplies for Colorado Babies and Families bill this week. Many families struggle to afford diapers on a daily basis, and the pandemic only made things worse. Some families take desperate measures like using trash bags and paper towels when they run out of disposable diapers. Ella Baldwin from Aurora cares for her great-granddaughter full-time and relies on places like WeCycle, a Denver-based diaper bank. If it wasn't for WeCycle and other food banks and places that, you know, are able to get diapers to help out, we wouldn't have been able to make it. Diaper banks are similar to food banks, but of course they distribute diapers. The new law helps pay for them. We spoke with the bill's sponsor, State Senator Brittany Pedersen, a Democrat who represents Jefferson County, when the bill was making its way through the legislature in April. Pedersen is a mother of a young child herself, and she joins us again with what happens from here. Welcome, Senator Pedersen. Hi, thanks so much for having me. This was your first bill as a state senator. How are you feeling now that it's been signed into law? I'm relieved. Uh, This was my first bill of the session that I was fighting for, um, making sure that we were meeting this urgent need in Colorado. It was a problem that had always existed and, and a need that existed before the pandemic hit. But the economic fallout really shed a light on the diaper needs in Colorado. The original bill, it had a two-year timestamp on it because you wanted it to be funded using federal stimulus money. But the bill act that passed actually doesn't have an expiration date on it now. Does that mean that we'll potentially see long-term funding for diaper banks? Yes, that was the goal. So we immediately, uh, you know, we worked through this bill and making sure that it was going to use one-time dollars for stimulus dollars. Ultimately, um, that was not in the package, and we worked with our caucus to prioritize ongoing funding because we know that this need is not going to go away when the pandemic is over. And another add-on that came through was extra funding, not just for diaper banks, but for food banks. What will that look like? Yes, this includes $2 million for the next each year for the next two years for diaper needs and one time $5 million for food banks. So you know, unfortunately, in Colorado, the need for diapers is actually higher than the need for food. And so um, both of these pieces are essential in making sure that we're meeting uh, the urgent needs during the pandemic and the economic fallout that has come because of it. And just a piece of background, diaper uh, food banks typically don't carry diapers. Is that right? Sometimes they do, but they're very limited in in their avail- in their access there because they're so expensive and they don't actually have consistent funding for them and distribution. So while we have nonprofits that work in this space, it can really, uh, you're going to have really changing uh, availability with diapers for food banks. So these two pieces of the bill really work in conjunction. Now that this bill is law, who gets the money for diaper distribution and how quickly do they get it? The nonprofits across Colorado will be able to apply those who actually have experience distributing diapers, so they have to have proven success for over two years. They work directly with manufacturers, so they're going to get the diapers for the best available price. And, well, while you're working on addressing the diaper need at the state level here in Colorado, U.S. Senator Tammy Duckworth, a Democrat from Illinois, was working on a federal bill, the End Diaper Need Act. Tell us a little bit more about this bill and how it interacts with the Colorado one. 
So Senator Duckworth is also a mom, as you know. She was the first woman to have a baby in the Senate. And moms are leading the way, both federally and here in Colorado. We not only need allies in our, our male colleagues, but we need champions. And there, it's no surprise that it's women who are taking on these issues and finally working to solve these problems. Um, her bill is a really important first step in providing medically necessary diapers for families who, are, who have a medical reason to have it for Medicaid funding and also qualifies the pandemic funding for one-time dollars one-time dollars for diaper distribution. But states have to ultimately prioritize that. So it's not a guarantee. And in Colorado, obviously, this is a big step with this bill. Is there Are there more needs that you see within this realm of diaper need that you want to see met with perhaps future legislation? So this is really just um, doing the bare minimum of what we need to be doing to support Colorado families. I This is just scratching the service for diaper needs. Before the pandemic hit, one out of three families were struggling to pay for diapers, and so that's a significant need in Colorado. So $2 million a year is still not going to do enough, but it will help families get by when they're trying to meet those needs towards the end of the month. So they're not deciding between paying for rent or paying for food or making sure that their diaper, their kids have dry diapers and that they're healthy and safe. And what are you hearing from constituents now that this bill is passed and is law? Uh, so it's very exciting. Organizations are thrilled. They can't believe that we finally got this done. Uh, we'll start to, we will start to hear from constituents who are going to have their needs met once they the organizations are able to distribute it. We set up this bill so that it can be immediately distributed and that we don't have a ton of barriers up front. Why do you think that we're seeing the needle moving on this issue now? You mentioned this has been a need for a really long time. It's because more women are in office. In Colorado, we have the most women elected in the history of Colorado, and we have the most diverse uh, legislature in the history of Colorado. And therefore, we're going to have experiences that are uh, that are represented that haven't been before. And like I said, we have four moms who took on this issue together, um, Senator Danielson, Representative Tipper, and Gonzalez Gutierrez. And how else have you seen that diversity in the legislature play out this, in this, leg- in this um, legislative session? Those life experiences are going to uh, make sure that when people are elected that they're actually advocating and representing the, the struggles that so many regular people are going through um, that far too often have not been represented in, in the places of power. So it's exciting, but we do have a lot more work to do. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. State Senator Brittany Pedersen is a Democrat. She represents Jefferson County. She sponsored the diaper bill that was just signed into law. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with what will it take to finally destroy all the mustard gas that's been stored in Pueblo for decades. I'm Avery Lill. You're with CPR News and KRCC. The 20 largest wildfires in Colorado history took place in the last 20 years, half of those since 2018. I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis from the CPR News Climate Team. The risk and intensity of forest fires increases as climate change causes warmer, drier conditions. Listen to CPR News for the latest reports on climate change and sign up for CPR's Climate Weekly Newsletter at CPR.org. 
The U.S. Army has stored tons of mustard agent in Pueblo, Colorado, since the 1950s. It was a chemical aid. It was a chemical weapons stockpile from the Cold War era. The U.S. U.S. committed to destroying all of its chemical munitions in the 90s, but it's taking a while. The Pueblo Chemical Depot is one of two remaining sites in the U.S. with chemical munitions. Last month, officials announced that they've neutralized nearly 2,000 tons of mustard agent in Pueblo, so they have about 650 tons to go. The Department of Defense aims to destroy the depot's whole stockpile by 2023. Walton Levi is the site manager, project manager. He works for the Assembled Chemical Weapons Alternatives Program. That's the government entity overseeing the destruction of mustard agent in Pueblo. Walton, thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. The Geneva Convention banned using chemical weapons like mustard gas in the 1920s. Why was the U.S. still making and storing them in the, ni- in the 1950s? Uh, I'm not sure of the exact policy and stuff, but I do know uh, chemical weapons were uh, one of the key components of the deterrence, uh, along with nuclear weapons and conventional weapons during the Cold War. And these chemical weapons stockpiled in Pueblo, more specifically, what kind of munitions are they? Uh, Our stockpile here is... Uh, totally comprised of mustard gas, and it composes uh, three types of weapon systems, uh, 155-millimeter projectiles, 105-millimeter projectiles, and 4.2-inch mortar rounds. And these projectiles, how are they designed to be used? Uh, They were designed to be uh, shot at our enemies, either through uh, artillery pieces such as howitzers or through uh, a mortar And they were actually made outside Denver at what was the Rocky Mountain Arsenal? Uh, That's where uh, the agent was manufactured, yes, and uh, the munitions, or the agent put into the munitions. And mustard gas, just to be clear, can kill someone, but usually it causes non-lethal injuries. Can you explain what it does? Certainly, yeah. Mustard gas uh, was designed to deny an an enemy uh, territory. So it is primarily a blister agent. So if it gets on your skin, in your eyes, uh, in your respiratory system, uh, it generates large blisters similar to if you burn yourself in some manner. And depending on the severity of those burns and the locations, uh, you're right, it can be lethal. Mm. And why did the military choose to store these weapons in Pueblo? Uh, I believe uh, mostly because uh, at that time uh, it was a remote location. Uh, the depot was built uh, in the early uh, 1940s uh, for World War II. And also uh, because of the climate here, we're very dry and arid, and it helps the long term storage of commodities such as munitions and explosives. So what you've described is a really dangerous chemical weapon. How do you safely store something like mustard gas for so many decades? Uh, There's various programs uh, that the Army has used over the decades to monitor and ensure the munitions are uh, safe. Uh, There are uh, air monitoring equipment uh, that checks the air inside the storage bunkers to make sure there's no leakers, Uh, highly trained uh, workforce and crews who are knowledgeable, uh, and protective equipment for the employees. 
The U.S. agreed to destroy these weapons back in the 90s. You started destroying the chemicals back in 2016. Why did it take so long to start the process? Uh, for here and for bluegrass, uh, the local communities uh, wanted a different technology than the what was going on in the rest of the nation in the country. Uh, most of the, those stockpiles uh, were destroyed with large incinerators. Here in Colorado and in bluegrass, they wanted a different technology and both settled on neutralization. So it took some time uh, to uh, develop that technology, uh, to get funding for that technology, to design the facilities and test the facilities before we started actual destruction. You mentioned bluegrass. That's a facility in Kentucky that's destroying mustard agent and a nerve agent. Um, There is a goal to destroy all this mustard gas in Pueblo by 2023. That deadline has been extended a number of times since the U.S. signed the treaty. Tell me a little bit more about why these weapons couldn't be destroyed faster. You mentioned the need to develop technology. Yes. uh, Like I said, for us, it was uh, mostly uh, to make sure the technology was in place. Uh, All the environmental permits were in place. Uh, Funding from Congress and those things were in place. Uh, You have to put a lot of those cards in order uh, to be able to move along successfully and safely uh, to meet your goals. And with the goals extended so many times, how are you feeling about this goal? Uh, Fairly confident for this goal. Uh, We have uh, last fall in September, we completed Uh, destruction of the 155 millimeter campaign. Uh, That was just a little under 300,000 munitions. Uh, In December, we started destruction of the 105 millimeter projectiles. Uh, That campaign is going very well. We're uh, just a little under 40% complete with that campaign. Uh, It has about 380,000 rounds in it. And then later this year, uh, maybe the beginning of 2022, we'll start destruction of the 4.2-inch mortar rounds. Uh, So depending on how that campaign plays out, uh, right now I'm feeling fairly confident we'll meet uh, the 2023 date. You mentioned a number of other sites that used incineration to destroy mustard gas, but in Pueblo you're neutralizing it. How do you neutralize mustard gas? Uh, actually, the concept sounds simple uh, to neutralize mustard itself. Uh, it's really just uh, hot water and a little bit of uh, a caustic solution to uh, maintain a pH. Uh, but the real art and what we do is we have to reverse disassemble a munition. So prior to doing the neutralization, we have to dismantle the munitions, uh, take off the explosive components, uh, breach the munition cavity to drain out the agent. So uh, for us, that's the the tricky part of the job and, and what we uh, have spent a lot of time trying to figure out is how to take a munition apart mm. safely. And this has been expensive. The facility in which you're doing this alone cost $4.3 billion to construct. And the project employs nearly 2,000 people. There are even robots involved. Is this all coming out of taxpayer money? 
Uh, yes, it is. And this operation continued through the COVID-19 pandemic with these thousands of employees. How did you handle the risk of viral spread at that facility? Uh, well, COVID, uh, just like uh, any other safety issue for our plant, uh, we sit down and figure out how to how to do that. Uh, so our plant and our operations were uh, kind of uh, aligned to managing COVID actually uh, because of our uh, PPE that's involved, our processes that we utilize, our how we manage the workforce and our workforce's perspective. Uh, we were able to uh, really isolate uh, our workforce and work with our clinic uh, to do a lot of contact tracing and keep COVID out of our plant and our plant running. And you have had 252 cases of COVID among your workers since last March? That is correct. What happens with that facility after all the chemicals are neutralized? Uh, those areas that are uh, highly contaminated from uh, processing uh, the, the mustard agent, uh, we will decon down and will dismantle and dispose of. Uh, those support facilities that aren't agent contaminated with, uh, we will work with the local communities, uh, local industry, and see if there's a need or a want uh, to leave that part of the facility behind and see if they can utilize that in some fashion, as, long as, as well as the workforce uh, that goes with those. It's taking billions of dollars and huge technological innovations to destroy weapons the military made almost 100 years ago. I'm curious how leading this cleanup shapes your perspective on current manufacture of weapons in the U.S. Are we setting ourselves up for a similar situation in the future? Uh, you know, I'm not uh, an expert on any of the new technologies or weapon systems uh, that the government's employing or thinking of employing. Uh, so I couldn't give you a really good answer on that. Well, I just want to thank you so much for joining us, Walton, and for sharing your perspective. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, it's a great project. Uh, it's great for Pueblo and Colorado that uh, we're getting rid of uh, this material and leaving the world a better place. Walton Levi is the site project manager. He oversees the destruction of mustard agent in Pueblo. Colorado's effort to stop fraud in the unemployment system has also blocked payments to an untold number of people who legitimately need help. CPR's Andrew Kenny joined one man as he tried to solve a bewildering problem with everything at stake. When you drive the dirt road to Bill Bain's house west of Castle Rock, each rise reveals another hundred acres of high grasses and scattered stands of trees, ranch land and green hillsides. Near the end of the road, there's a handsome gray farmhouse from the 1860s. Bill Bain sits in the shade on the porch. This is the old Manhart Ranch. Uh, he's one of the first settlers in Sedalia, Colorado. We bought this 35 years ago. Bain's a burly older guy, 74 with a big white beard. 
He and his wife, Alice, own a small corner of the sprawling old ranch. We're country folks, and uh, we we just love this place out here. <clears throat> when we first got here, there was no homes up there on the hill. This was just us. They do some farming, but Bain's main job for years was driving a tractor for an environmental reclamation company. Early in the pandemic, the company folded, and he started collecting unemployment until the payments abruptly stopped in March. He'd been locked out by the state's new identity verification system. It's hard to put in words how a person feels when he doesn't have, you know, we went through all of our savings. The only thing that we rely on now is uh, I got my income tax check back, and that's going to last for about two weeks, and that's it. The state asked Bain and every other person getting unemployment to prove who they are through a third-party service called ID.me. But when he used his phone to upload images of his face, he got an error message. It said he'd need to wait on a virtual line to speak with a human being. Estimated wait time is two hours and 43 minutes. But that time he was showing me on his phone would never change. Which that has been like that for over two weeks. He couldn't get through, so he couldn't get his benefits. No error message, no explanation, and nowhere to turn. I call unemployment, uh, absolutely no help. They say they have nothing to do with this. And I go, well, I, you know, I need help. And they said, well, we're sorry. The state's unemployment payments dropped by tens of millions of dollars per week after they instituted IDME. Officials say it's catching a lot of fraud, but there are also innocent people who don't have the right hardware or the right knowledge to use the automated system. And sometimes it just doesn't work. Bain had tried all sorts of things. His daughter spent a whole day on it. He called helplines and went to the county workforce center, but no one could tell him what the problem was. I've been reporting on ID.me, and I thought that what Bain needed was a solid internet connection and a computer. He didn't have either. He was using a smartphone instead. So we got in his Ford F-350 and started down the long road back to town. The reason I'm driving on this side, I know where the bumps are on this road. Bain's lost faith that anything will work at this point, but he needs this to happen. He's finally lined up a new job. Not easy when you're in your 70s in a tough physical industry, but it wouldn't start for a while. If I can just hold on for a couple, couple, three months, I'll be all right going back to work. But, you know, without the help I, I need from the unemployment, I don't know what's going to happen. We were heading to the Castle Rock Library so that we could use their Wi-Fi instead of the spotty cell service on the farm. But the library doesn't have any computers with webcams, which are the most surefire way to get through the process. So I brought my own laptop and blocked off the afternoon to see what it takes to solve this. We got set up in a cramped little study room in the teen section of all places. Bane pecked in his password at the ID.me website. And then the problem started. No, this isn't right. I mean, I've never seen this. We struggled for a few minutes until we realized that we had to use a different login page. Finally, we were placed in line, supposedly, for a video interview with one of IDME's contractors. There you go. One hour and 48 minutes. He wasn't optimistic. We'll wait here one hour, and I'll bet it's still one hour. You have very low faith, Bill. Man, I've been through this, man. As Bain and I sat in the study room, I read him some of the emails that I've gotten from other people struggling with the same system. I'm a native and a USMC veteran. I've been waiting 27 weeks. I am the same man and have the same... There were two suicide threats in my inbox. I'd already connected one of the senders with crisis help. I found the other as I paged through the messages in the library. Did you get in touch with that guy? Yeah, I sent him an email. I'm going to try calling him, actually. Yeah, you should. Meanwhile, it looked like we were actually making some progress on Bane's case. After half an hour of waiting, we'd taken 20 minutes off the timer. 
But Bill was right to be skeptical. I ain't buying it. The timer went down and up and then down. And eventually, after two hours of waiting, it put us back where we had started. You've got to be kidding me. It don't work. That thing doesn't work. When the unemployment system fails, people often get only vague error messages. And when there's no one to tell you the right solution, it can start to feel like there's no solution. No, I knew it wouldn't work. But I appreciate you trying, you know. So this is the way it is all the time. Idemi says they're working on changes. They had promised to open in-person verification stations a month ago, but they're nowhere to be seen and there are none planned in Colorado. The state's labor department says that its own help agents have resolved thousands of people's IDME problems and they've launched some new technical solutions. None of that had helped Bain. But eventually, as we kept waiting, the numbers went back down. 60 minutes. Then 30 minutes. And then 5. Bain's foot started tapping. It's very possible I could lose everything. So hopefully this will work. And then, at last, a woman appeared on screen and introduced herself. Good, how are you? Good. Um, can you hear me okay? Yes, ma'am. She asked him to show his ID and recite some personal information and look at the camera. So before I take a look at those documents, I'm going to have you confirm some personal After months of trying and hours in the library, the approval took just three minutes. Well, thank you for your patience. Um, this completes your trust. Afterward, Bain looked like he didn't know quite how to feel. <laughs> it's weird. It's weird, Andy. What he needed all along was the right technology and a lot of waiting, long after he'd given up hope. Back on the road, Bain thanked me warmly, but he noted that having a reporter bring you a laptop and guide you through the system isn't really a sustainable solution. I don't, what about all these other people that are having this same type of problem? By the time we got back to his place, a thunderstorm was rolling in across the mountains. He called his wife on the phone from the front yard. We got that handled and uh, <clears throat> I gotta wait to do a few more things and then we're good. His benefits were unfrozen within a few days. Okay, bye. Eventually, he got thousands of dollars in back pay. He thinks it'll be enough to last until his new job starts and keep them living in this hidden corner of the front range. I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. Every year, students from across the country vie to have their artwork hang in the U.S. Capitol complex. Each house district picks one winner. The works are displayed in an underground tunnel. Maybe not the most scenic site, but one with lots of foot traffic. And as CPR's Caitlin Kim reports, it's an opportunity to showcase the talents of Colorado students as well as the state. 16-year-old Anella Navarro thought she was just going to breakfast with her mom and some family friends. But when she walked into a restaurant in La Junta, her Swink High School art teacher Max Cardova and Congressman Ken Buck were there to tell her she had won this year's congressional art competition for Colorado's 4th Congressional District. I was really surprised and I was like at a loss of words and I just kept repeating thank you. Since 1982, students have been sending in works of art to their House representative for a chance to have it hang in the Capitol. Anella's watercolor landscape has purple mountains, red, orange, and evergreen trees, and blue lake waters. While it's not an iconic Colorado mountain, it feels iconically Coloradan. After she submitted it, she didn't really dwell on her chances of getting chosen. It was left to her mother, Shira Navarro, who, in her words, connived with Anella's art teacher to surprise Anella with the news that her piece was selected. Yeah, I did the whole embarrassing mom thing and cried and, and all of that. So, <laughs> Shira gives art teacher Cardova a lot of credit. 
He fought hard to get Anella into the competition after some entry snafus, and Shira says he's always encouraged Anella's artwork in the small rural school located in southeastern Colorado, where the graduating class averages around 30 kids. There's not a lot of funding and things available here. So he goes out and buys extra art supplies. He he makes sure that she has certain projects that she can work on. Because she's been talented for years, but she's very humble about her work. Halfway across the state in Boulder, Margot Helson found out in class that her piece was selected by a local panel to represent Joe Nagus's second congressional district. She drew inspiration closer to home. It's a portrait, a candid sketch of her friend Hannah. It's just so exciting to know that people who have such impactful jobs will get to look at my friend's face and look at my work. And I don't know, it's kind of fun to think like, oh, who's going to stop by and like take a look at it and, you know, study it. Quentin Babcock says he got a nudge to apply from his art teacher at Cherokee Trail High School. His photo, Colorado Through the Smoke, was selected the winner for Representative Jason Crow's 6th Congressional District. Quentin got inspired during a walk last summer with his mom to a nearby hill. So we figured it'd be a cool sunset. So like right before sunset, we walked up there and we just like set up the tripod and stuff on the top of the hill right by our house. Uh, since it was so smoky, like it was like super orange and stuff. So we just we decided to go back the next day and took a bunch of photos of it. The rising senior admits he had no expectation of winning, especially after checking out the competition in his district. But in a year where much of Colorado burned, Quinton's photo was timely and captured the scale of the problem. But he stresses he didn't submit the work to send a political message. Rather, I don't know, it just it seemed to really represent the state. So that's why that's why we entered this one. Yeah. Rohanna Hasselkus did want to send a message with her painting. The junior at the Denver School of the Arts has been eyeing this competition since the eighth grade. This was her first time entering and she knew what her theme was going to be. Language. Because I come from immigrant parents, my mother's English and my father's Mexican. I'm going into a bilingual household. Language is always very important to me. So sharing this passion for language was something I wanted to do. She was selected the winner for Representative Diana DeGette's district. Her piece involves a crowd of people whose mouths are covered with tape. And over their mouths they have, in the quotations, you're in America, speak English. She hopes it causes lawmakers walking between their offices and the Capitol to stop and think. And really what this is supposed to speak about is how this country has a great lingua diversity, yet sometimes we try to repress it. And... I think that we should actually embrace our lingual diversity because it makes us stronger as a culture. Anella Navarro from Swink has a simpler wish for those passing by her painting. I hope that it just represents Colorado really well and that they can enjoy the beauty of it. Unlike the winners from last year, this year's students make it to see their pieces in person in the U.S. Capitol complex. The building has been closed to the public since the pandemic started last March. The seven pieces from Colorado's congressional districts are expected to be displayed starting in September. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. Finally today, Denver singer-songwriter Aralee Michelle's debut album, Echolalia, is a musical journal of self-love. Her songs chronicle her experiences with trauma, abuse, and chauvinism. The opening track shares its name with a tragic Shakespearean character. 
I read about something called Ophelia syndrome, where the person tends to romanticize things too much and they get themselves into these horrible situations. And I kind of had this idea of what if I retold Ophelia's story rather than her tragically dying because she's upset that Hamlet killed her father. What if she became her own person? And that's kind of what that song is about, is taking all of the adversity that you face, especially as a woman, and deciding, you know what, I'm gonna live my best life in spite of it. While she waited around for everyone, but no one ever came. Ophelia, now hang your head and weep. No one wants your bleeding heart or your wretched soul to keep. Oh, but I was almost certain that on some level he cared. Judging by the That's Ophelia from Denver singer-songwriter Aralee Michelle's new album, Echolalia. It's out now. Thank you for joining us and to the Colorado's Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.